0: Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host as always and I'm joined as always by Luke Boggs. How are you doing, Luke? I'm doing good. Feels like it's been a while, but it actually hasn't. Yeah, it hadn't been that long, but it feels like we're sort of slipping back into something a little more normal, no more... Georgia Six, some sort of quieter summer stuff going on in Georgia politics that we're going to talk about today. But I think some of this stuff gets back to closer to sort of the heart of our podcast, which is sort of the little the little things that go on in state government that we think are important and worth sharing with you. Um, so on this week's show, we have three topics. We're going to talk about the inaugural meeting of a transit governance study committee. This is one of many study committees going on at the legislature this summer, and this one is specifically looking at how to increase opportunities for transit in Atlanta and across the state. Um, it may not be, it may not have all the big design ideas that people in infrastructure get really excited about, but this is sort of some of the nitty-gritty stuff that helps make that possible. So we're going to take a look at the first meeting of that uh, study committee and talk a little bit about where it might go. For our second topic this week, we're going to talk about uh, what has really been at the top of the news in Georgia politics, which is the decision by Georgia's secretary of state, Brian Kemp to partially agree to a request from a voter fraud commission established by the Trump administration. Um, Kemp is going to partially comply with a data request by releasing publicly available information to the commission, which is in search of, uh, you know, voting irregularities or if you have a more sinister view of the commission, there. uh, You know, some people would call them a voter suppression commission. So we're going to talk about the commission, the debate over voting in Georgia, and um, get some thoughts on some of the Secretary of State candidates who have weighed in on this for us. And then for our third topic this week, we're going to talk about um, State Representative Tommy Benton and his uh, Civil War fan fiction. You might have seen in the news, uh, Benton sent a mailer to several other members of the House about uh, the role slavery played in the cause of the Civil War. Um, he ended up losing a chairmanship over that. So we're going to talk about that as well. But first, we're going to start, we're going to get back to a little bit of our usual format and start with uh, some news items for the week. So Luke, what did you see in the news this week? Well, I'm going to uh, indulge my federal
1: tendencies and talk about the fact that uh, one Congressman Jason Chaffetz is no longer in Congress. He has left Congress uh And uh, he had an exit interview with Chuck Todd that I found really, really interesting. I highly suggest everyone listen to it. And the thing that I find interesting is that he was like one of the main people like going after Hillary all the time and, you know, constantly investigating Democrats. And now that his party's in charge, it kind of seemed like the fun of being in Congress had left for him. And he was one of the people I think had a really interesting national profile during the campaign that he would very often come out against things that Trump said and then take it back. He, you know, kind of infamously stated that he, uh, you know, couldn't support Trump anymore after the Ag- Hollywood uh, tape um, and say, so, you know, he couldn't look his daughters in the eye and support Trump. And then like a week later is like Trump the greatest. I hope he's president. So it's just kind of interesting that, you know, I think I think what I'm trying to say is it's interesting to see that we have like one of our first casualties of the Trump era, because it just seemed like the fun was gone for him. And in this interview, uh, he has a lot of interesting takes on what's wrong with Congress. And I think it's kind of sad that it takes people uh, removing themselves from Congress for them to actually express what they think needs to be done uh to fix Congress. And, you know, some of the ideas he has are pretty radical, such as, you know, giving a housing stipend for Congress people to kinda keep them in the district a little bit more securely.
0: Yeah, he kinda I saw that too. He kinda got mocked for it because it comes a couple of weeks after he weighed in on the healthcare debate by saying that people who want to afford the health insurance coverage might have to go might, might have to pass over buying the brand new iPhone but on this i actually think he's right i mean i live actually live in the Capitol Hill neighborhood in DC and it's really expensive to live here and the cost of living here has really exploded in recent years as a, a lot of young people like me have come to the city for grad school or new job opportunities the the city has really kind of struggled to keep up their affordable housing and that is something that affects members of congress even if you think oh they make a lot of money they make over 100 grand a year. But if you have a home in your home state, and then you're trying to find a way to be here, uh, you know, maybe, you know, more than 100 nights a year, probably, I don't know, what do you think 100 150 nights a year, it's expensive. And so I I think he I think that was a good idea that is probably not going to get its due because of who it came from. But yeah, interesting to hear from him as he is on his way back to Utah. So for my news item this week, uh, last week, State Senator Renee Unterman held a press conference about uh, the opioid crisis in Georgia, um, you might have seen in headlines back in, I think it was late May, early June, that there were three people that died of what appeared to be an opioid overdose. Um, there were some yellow pills found that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation wasn't familiar with, I and mean, they've been trying to figure out what these pills were um, since then. But you know, the opioid crisis is something that really began up in the Northeast, and then it's kind of migrated down to the South. Um, and so it's something that the state legislature needs to uh, address. And Unterman's coming out of leading a study committee on this last year, and sh- she sounded like in the press conference that she was trying to put an agenda together for next year. I um, mean, the most important thing that she said she does related to this is is her ability to appropriate money, uh, which is something that even in you know the more wealthy parts of Atlanta, having money to actually build out some infrastructure related to. Getting people who abuse opioids and other drugs, getting them drug treatment and getting them consistent care—that's um, something that you know the state legislature really, I think, is an important problem for them to consider. But you know, this comes at the backdrop of the debate over the Affordable Care Act in Washington, and one of the sticking points right now in that debate is uh, West Virginia's Republican Senator Senator Capito. Um, she's been offered, to some extent, for her vote on this bill, extra money to address the opioid crisis in West Virginia. And she's pointed out that while the money is nice, um, you know, the, the fact that people could lose their Medicaid coverage, or their private health insurance coverage is something that she's not comfortable with. And it's always worth noting in this moment that Georgia did not expand the Medicaid program. And, um, you know, they're kind of behind on their ability to address this issue. And they've kind of hamstrung themselves a little bit in that way. But we'll leave that for there for now. Uh, it's something that I'm interested in following as it, as this debate continues going. So I'm sure we'll talk about it again soon. Uh, but with that, I think we'll jump right into our first topic this week. So last week was also the first meeting of a transit governance study committee on the House side. Um, this is a committee that you know isn't actually just dreaming up all the big projects, the fancy new transit that you might be able to see in Atlanta in the next 20 or 30 years, but it's sort of the nuts and bolts, the underground stuff about uh, you know how governments coordinate different local governments across the city and and the ways in which the state can support transit development, not only in Atlanta, but around all of Georgia. There was one big piece of news to come out of this, and this was the idea that uh, was laid out by House Speaker David Ralston. He gave basically what was the intro speech to this committee, where he endorsed the idea that transit systems in Georgia could get some state funding with some reasonable oversight, Uh, In his speech, he said, I am not of the opinion that the state must wholly control or take over a transit system in order to provide funding. Um, And this was something that not only did he just say was possible, uh, it's something he seemed to encourage the committee to consider, um, which is, you know, if you're somebody who's been interested in transit issues in Georgia, uh, that is almost revolutionary, the idea that the state would actually be almost eager to fund transit. So Luke, what did you think of that just little bit of news that comes right off the top of this uh, study committee meeting?
1: I mean, so I've been following Georgia politics very, very closely since I've been in college. And for that whole time, transit is one of those things that I've just seen be a continuous discussion, because basically, you know, one of the first Things I saw when I came into Georgia politics was the failure of the T-splast vote. Ever since then, everyone's kind of been of the same opinion that like, we need to do something about transit, but they have not actually been the bullet and done something. And so it is encouraging to hear David Ralston say this. I really hope that this is a sign that they are willing to bite the bullet and throw some state funds into it. But I'm just incredibly skeptical because a lot of these efforts to me have always felt like, them saying, oh, we have to appear that we're doing something about transit. So let's have a committee and let's, you know, think about this issue and propose bills. But nothing actually happens because it didn't happen with the T Splost. That was more, you know, due to Georgia Vogers than them, but it didn't happen there. We just in the past two years had a major transportation overhaul package, which could have uh, included transit options, but did not. And, you know, I, I kind of feel like, we've missed our moment already let like we're already behind we've already lost the moment to really push Georgia forward with uh, expanding transit in a really significant way and so unfortunately until I see otherwise I'm of the opinion that whatever comes out of this is not guaranteed to actually pass and become bill and then get signed by a governor And it's far more likely, you know, they're going to give a strong recommendation for some action that, you know, very well could be bold. But by the time it goes through the legislative process, it'll be so significantly watered down that it'll be a pretty small change, which is really unfortunate because we are so behind in transit as compared to our uh, not only our neighbors, but just the whole country and states of our size.
0: Yeah, I'm I would say I'm a little bit more optimistic than you are. But I think that there's a big piece of uncertainty, which is the governor's race. But um, the thing that has given me a little more optimism for for Speaker Ralston to sort of put this at the very top of the agenda for this commission and to encourage the House committee to, you know, consider state funding for transit, I think is pretty meaningful because it, it seems to implicitly have his backing. And, you know, we're all you know, pretty aware of and have talked about before how well uh, Speaker Ralston runs the House And so if this is something that he wants to see done, I think it could get at least get support in the House. Um, The other piece of this that I think is relevant is that you've had Republicans in the metro Atlanta area, particularly ones closer to 285, that have sort of stuck their neck out for transit in a way that they hadn't before. I'm thinking of the um, Brandon Beach state Senate race. I think this was last fall uh, where Beach beat back a more conservative opponent by who criticized his embrace of transit, which was interesting because Beach's Senate district sort of splits between sort of the the area in Alpharetta, which would benefit from maybe a MARTA expansion or more public transit options. And I think that area is a little bit more concerned with how to use public transit to get in the city. But then it also stretches over into northwest of Atlanta and Cherokee County, um, and on an issue that I wrote about before, where people who live over in Cherokee County, sort of up the I-75 corridor, they don't want anything to do with MARTA or any of these public transit systems. But you know, Beach ended up winning that race, and, and you've seen some more encouraging signs from Republicans. But I do think that this is an issue. It seemed as though the outcomes from this committee may not be acted on next year. And I would find it hard to believe that the legislature is going to have a big push around transit funding in an election year. And then there are some candidates, if I'm, I think I'm remembering this correctly, that, you know, Brian Kemp, a Republican candidate for governor, current Secretary of State, he seemed to be more focused on issues in rural Georgia, and I think implied, I'll, I'll go try to dig this quote up, and we'll put it in the show notes, but I think implied that rural Georgia wasn't really interested in helping to fund transit in Atlanta. Um, and so if you end up with a governor that comes out of this next governor's race that is opposed to transit, um, you know, they're going to, I think, pretty immediately be a big roadblock for the growth of transit in this area. Um, But the last thing I would note that that makes me a little bit more optimistic is, I think, for those on the left that have wanted to see bigger expansions of transit, um, I think the draw has always been to do some sort of bigger MARTA expansion. When you look at other big cities in the Northeast here in Washington, New York, Boston, they have, you know, much more sprawling rail transit systems, you know, that that are more accessible and take you to more places. But one, I think promising sign to me is that rail may not be at least stretching further out into the suburbs, rail may not be the best option. But Uh, bus rapid transit might be a really important option for the region to consider as a whole and a way for people out in like the further reaches of Gwinnett and Cobb and Cherokee and Fulton counties to get into the city or people on the South side also. And the thing that Atlanta has done is they've, you know, built out these new peach pass lanes. Um, these are these express lanes that started on I-85, But you've got new ones that have opened up on I-75 south of the the city. And then in 2018, it's expected that more express lanes on the I-75, I-575 corridor northwest of the city are going to open. And in the commission, Chris Tomlinson, who's the executive director of the State Road and Tollway Authority, he noted the importance of these lanes in terms of helping bus rapid transit have consistent travel times from the suburbs into the city and if you had tried to propose bus rapid transit as a solution for the Atlanta area, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I think the the response would have been, well, these buses are just going to sit in traffic like everybody else does. But these lanes are you know, apparently designed to make these trip times reliable for bus rapid transit. And if you can actually get people in the suburbs to you know feel good about that try that out um this may be a more sustainable solution that is doesn't carry the giant expense of big rail uh expansions um and maybe more amenable to, you know, moderate conservative Republicans in Atlanta.
1: Yeah, I'm, I I think the problem is, and this is why I, I mentioned the transportation bill that we had a couple of years back, is just the fact that transit was something that that commission said that we should put money into, a significant amount of money. And they all, and the you know, the commission also said that we should raise several billion dollars to fund transportation in the state and they only uh, raise taxes enough to raise 900 million so it's just like they've already proven that they're pretty pretty skeptical about pumping more money into transportation and i think the only reason why this conversation keeps coming up is that the business community which obviously usually is very supportive of republicans are pretty frustrated by the lack of progress on this issue. And so to me, again, until I see something different, this feels like they're just going through the motions and fulfilling an obligation to appear like they're trying to get something done. But I also want to really not disagree with you that I I am happy to see that Ralston and others are seeming to take this seriously. It's just I'm kind of skeptical on their ability to deliver since it seems like it's been pretty hard in the past for them to deliver on this same exact issue only two years ago and you know not in a major election season that you know would have threatened a lot of their prospects because if i recall correctly it was like right after the 2014 elections that they put they took this up
0: yeah i think the the thing to note about the I think it was the 2015 bill that raised the the gas tax to help fund some of the maintenance road projects that, that Georgia was so behind on. The, the Republicans that were actually willing to sort of defend the tax increase that was a part of this also did, if I remember correctly, seem to say that this was like step one and that this wasn't doing anything to actually alleviate transit problem or alleviate traffic problems in Atlanta. Um, that that needed to come in a step two or a step three after the fact. But yeah, they are going to be fighting against the the really conservative Republicans that oppose that tax increase. And and I can remember some of them saying that it was the biggest tax increase in Georgia's state history. And if they're not willing to vote for a tax increase that would fund general road maintenance, I can't imagine they'd be willing to you know, send tax dollars to primarily the city of Atlanta to, um, you know, to build out transit.
1: Yeah, um, and and that's a big problem too that we haven't mentioned yet, is like we're one of the only states of our size and our economic power that does not fund public transit with state funds. And so right now it's all reliant on the local communities and the agreements that they have to fund these transit agencies. And that is just really, really concerning because, you know, there's places like Texas and North Carolina, even South Carolina, that are pumping a lot of money into their public transit systems. And not even to mention Florida as well is doing it. And, you know, as as good Georgia Bulldogs, there's nothing more that we hate than being beat by Florida, um, that should be a sign of you know how how far behind uh, we are because that's something we should definitely put in show notes. I've seen a lot of charts of just like in comparison how much money these other states spend on public transit compared to Georgia. And it's just it's it's very, very uh, disheartening because the states that are spending, you know, the range of money that we're spending is for states of much, much smaller sizes than us. And, and the other thing is, too, that I think is really important to point out that we've kind of hinted at, but haven't straight up said, this is not just about Atlanta. I mean, we've got transit in Athens, that's actually pretty good and really could use more funds. And that would significantly improve the service, I think, and having more buses and having more routes. Um, We've got Columbus. And, I'm um, you know, not a couple other counties around Atlanta have their own systems outside of Marga. So it's not just Marga. It's a lot of other um, other opportunities as well. And as I'm a big fan of, there's really no regional solution yet either. And that's something I would really like to see where you can see, you know, a route uh, between Athens and Atlanta and Atlanta and Macon and stuff like that. Because right now you know, it's pretty hard to get between those major cities without a car. And so that's really the place where we need to be thinking about where we need to be going. And I guess, I guess that's why I'm so disheartened, is that like, I would be very surprised if this uh, commission comes out and says, hey, we should probably think about regional transit. And we should think about ways to connect our cities with rail or buses, even. Um, I'd be I'd be really, really surprised to see that. And even more surprised to see that actually be brought up in legislation. So I guess it's just this, it seems like until we see the actual proposals, I'm just going to assume that this is going to be a lot of half measures at the end of the day. And since we are so far behind in comparison to the states we compete with, that's just very frustrating to me.
0: Yeah, I think I would close by saying that on on the regional thing, um, it's actually somewhat ironic that the metro Atlanta area could actually learn from rural Georgia. Um, Chairman Kevin Tanner frequently brought up regional transit agreements that cross county lines in rural Georgia. Um, These are, they deal with sort of smaller transit issues. It's particularly related to, you know, getting low income people to medical appointments or, or having some kind of like on demand transportation. It's, you know, it's a, it's a much different problem in rural Georgia than it is in, in metro Atlanta. But, but rural agreements between counties have seemed to work really well in like South Georgia. If you're looking for what the concrete thing is, that's going to come out of this committee is it hopefully would be some sort of foundation for some of these regional agreements that hopefully people in the Metro Atlanta are going to want to buy into because the, you know, the county groupings that made up the 2012 t vote were, were also debated and, and there were, people who were further out in the suburbs that didn't want to have their vote tied with what people closer to the city of Atlanta were going to decide. Um, So that was a big part of, you know, the the regional issue pervades so much of Atlanta politics. um, But that, you know, when you if you're looking for what the solution coming out of that might be, um, you know, the regional agreements are where to look. But with that, I think we'll, we'll leave that one there. I'm also interested in this one, so I'm I'm going to continue to follow this one. The next meeting is probably at least another three weeks away. Um, but this is sort of a long-term effort. I think you're looking at at least a couple of years, and it's something that's definitely going to be shaped by the way the candidates for governor address this issue.
1: Yeah, and I I just close by saying I, I know I just like poo-pooed on this effort, but I, I am very happy that's happening because, you know, there there's definitely a version of events where the T plot T splice vote could scare everybody so much that they wouldn't have looked into it. And a lot of people could have just said, and I did hear this argument that like, we just spent a bunch of money on transportation. And there's no reason when you should be talking about transportation again. So yeah, maybe I'm being too much of a, a pessimist on this and hopefully I'll be pleasantly surprised by a bunch of bold action from
0: <laughs> this commission. Uh, well, with that, I think we'll move on to our second topic. Um, so, for our second topic, we're going to discuss the launch of a, a Voter Integrity Commission launched by the Trump administration. Um, this is uh, Vice President Mike Pence along with Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach are leading a federal commission that they say is meant to study voter fraud and to ensure that um, you know our elections are being run soundly and fairly. Uh, But this is sort of placed at the backdrop of what Trump continues to say, which is that he would have won the popular vote if not for three to five million illegal votes that allowed Hillary Clinton to come out on top of him in the popular vote margin. But so there's a lot of skepticism of this committee and of its intent. Uh, from really from Democrats and Republicans from, from both sides of the aisle on this. But the, the Georgia tie-in to this is that the commission released a request to all 50 states, and, and I believe D.C. also, to get some voter information, including names, addresses, birth dates, party affiliations. Um, they also sought felony convictions, military status, uh, the last four digits of Social Security numbers, and voting records dating back to 2006, Um, A lot of states refused this request. A lot of states also said that they were going to sort of partially comply. Um, Georgia is in the category of partially complying. Georgia Secretary of State Brian Kemp said he would release the publicly available voter information. Um, This is the same information that you or I could go to the Secretary of State's website and buy if we wanted to. uh, Political campaigns buy this information. But Kemp would withhold some of the other information that's not publicly available in Georgia, including things like your birth month and birth day, your social security number, and your military status and felony convictions. Luke, let's just uh, start with you. What is your sort of first impression of this commission um, and Georgia's role in it?
1: I mean, the first thing I'd say is that it's entirely unnecessary and that their goal is to find a problem that doesn't exist. And so... It's, it's very frustrating to me that my time and my tax dollars and my attention is going to be wasted on this because this all has to do with Donald Trump's ego that he feels like a bunch of people falsely voted, and that's why they are wanting to look into this. And, you know, the person who's really behind this and has been put in charge of this commission is, you know, Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, and he is another one of the people that are convinced that they're, despite all data, which there's a ton of data and a ton of research has been done, that voter fraud is really not happening, he's convinced it's there. And so I mean the thing is at the end of the day, if you are convinced a problem is happening, you will you will look and you will find it. And that that's at the end of the day, what I think is gonna happen from this and what why people are concerned about it is because this is them searching for a problem and If they do a bad job and get a bunch of false positives, they will be rewarded because the boss is saying, hey, all these people voted illegally, go find them. And then you, you know, find people that you say voted fakely and then, you know, you're rewarded for finding inaccurate data. So it's it's a prime setup for, you know. It's um, skullduggery.
0: Um, So you we reached out to candidates running for secretary of state. Um, This is obviously an important issue to consider when you're thinking about these candidates. Uh, You reached out to Democrat R.J. Hadley. What did he have to say about Kemp's decision in this voter? Yeah.
1: So I reached out to him and he sent me this statement, which I'm going to read starting now. Kansas secretary of state Chris Kobach has been fighting his own imaginary crusade against non-existent voter fraud for years. He has been rejected and fined by his own Kansas courts for his recklessness. Now as a lead for Trump's sham voter integrity group, Kobach has been rejected again by most U.S. secretaries of state for his attempted power grab of state's voter data. Unfortunately, GA Secretary Kemp chose to comply and legitimize his wrong headache effort. I see this as a slippery slope attack on states' rights and the eventual formation of a national voter registry system. If I am elected uh, as GA Secretary of State, I will secure the citizens' voter data from intrusion and safeguard us from this federal overreach, end quote. Yeah, so what do you think of that, Kyle?
0: I mean, I share his skepticism of this voter commission. I don't think that there's any reason to feel like you know, they're going to be operating above board on this. Um, but I, I don't know. Well, Stacey I, Abrams, who's a candidate for governor, um, also was critical of Brian Kemp. And I think the thing that's just somewhat missing from these critiques a little bit is that this is publicly available data. And I think that but but are to argue against to this, pause I think for a to, That's
1: not what the Trump commission asked for. Now, that's what they're mostly getting, but that's not what they wanted. They wanted everything.
0: Yeah, but the criticism from Democrats on this seems to be criticism of Kemp for even giving the publicly available information. And I just think that you need to sort of complete the argument here that if, if state law requires that this information be open to the public for inspection, which is what I think the code paraphrase of what the code says, then do we need to consider that this information should not be publicly available to anyone? Because even if you're concerned about some of the privacy issues, you or I could go buy that data from the Secretary of State's office today and post it on the Internet. I don't know that there's anything that stops us from actually well, doing it's that.
1: because Okay, well, basically, this is this is why I would say I'm against this move. It is quite clear that Trump's administration is going to do something nefarious with this data. Why make it easier on them? They have, like, in the court of public opinion, proven that they will ignore all data on this. They are convinced that despite no evidence, to the point that, you know, the organization with these, you know, no bravery called CNN even says there's no evidence every single time they mention this story, They've already proven that they are going to find evidence of something that pretty much everyone knows doesn't exist, that they're going to use this data for their nefarious purposes. So why would you help them in that? And, you know, of course, that's not something I think someone should do.
0: This is the other thing that I find interesting about this is, is what is the Trump administration unilaterally actually capable of doing aside from letting this information be susceptible to hackers and potentially being you know, exposed to the public. They could do something with Congress. I mean, Congress has a role in, you know, you know, sort of overseeing state regulation of elections. But I'm not sure that this is something that's on the Republican agenda. And it's something that Democrats would have the ability to filibuster in the Senate. So I'm just not sure I share the skepticism, I just don't feel the outrage that some people feel, because I just don't know what the Trump administration can do by themselves. And I feel like that this is much more for, well, show it's just like, than, well than why find out? Be of substance.
1: <laughs> why find out? Why help them? It's like, if they're doing, again, yeah. if they're doing this, so obviously for show. So let's say you're right. And there's no actual tangible thing that they can do with this data besides like go on TV and say, everyone that voted for Hillary Clinton is an illegal voter. And Trump actually won with 100% of the vote. Like, if that's all they can do, why help them do that? <laughs> that's, that's my point. And that, like, why take the risk to find out that, oh, they actually can do something with this data by giving it to them? It's just, I, I guess what it is, is just, like, we're encouraging this effort and legitimizing this effort by giving them this data and that, like, this is a legitimate thing for them to be doing. You know that that's that's where I have the concern.
0: I would like to see the the argument more fully fleshed out that Georgia should actually violate its own state law by withholding. Well, it's not withholding, it's just making
1: it making them the go after it themselves and they can buy it just like everybody else if they want it that badly.
0: Well, they are in Georgia they're buying it. Kemp hasn't actually released the data. I think he said today that they are waiting on the $250 check from the White House.
1: Well, I mean, in that case, I, you know, if, the, if that's the case, then I have less problem with it.
0: Let's check in on the the Republican candidates though. I reached out to all four Republicans who are currently declared for running for secretary of state. Um, I heard back from Buzz Brockway and Josh McCune. Um, so Buzz, uh, referred us to the Facebook post that he put up about this, Um, And and to paraphrase what he said, he said that he agrees with the decision by Brian Kemp and Governor Deal to only share publicly available information with the president's commission and to not share, quote, information considered private under state law, such as registered voters, driver's license numbers, or social security numbers. Buzz goes on to say that the commission can conduct its investigation without using private information. And he notes the point that... uh, that we've discussed a little bit that anybody who wants this information can simply purchase it from the Secretary of State's office. He says that President Obama's campaign had this type of information for all 50 states, as did Secretary Clinton and every other candidate for president. Publicly available information is just that publicly available, and that's what Georgia is sharing with the President's Commission. Uh, Josh McCune, who is a newly declared candidate for Secretary of State, uh, uh, sent us this statement just a few hours after he declared. So kudos to McCune for Exclusive. that. Um, he said he supports the aims of the commission, but he also shares a concern about privacy given the many recent leaks and data breaches. He says, quote, I want to work with other States to improve the existing interstate cross check system and state agencies to improve data reporting he goes on to say, fighting voter fraud is just as important as ensuring privacy of data that could be used for identity theft. They both go to ensuring the integrity of our electoral process. I look forward to working with the President's electoral Election Integrity Commission on both of those. Luke, what do you think of these two? Oh, I should note that um, I also reached out to State Representative Brad Raffensberger. Uh, who's declared candidate, and Alpharetta, Alpharetta Mayor David Bell Isle. If I get statements back from them, we'll update those in the show notes, but um, did not hear from them yet. But what do you think of these statements from the Republican side of this uh, emerging race, uh, you know Buzz Brockaways and Josh McCoons.
1: I think it's quite clear that if Barack Obama or President Hillary Clinton had requested the stega, they would burn down the Secretary of State's office before they gave it to them. And you know, it's just it, it's just another example of how ridiculously polarized we've gotten. Because you know, I will admit my own you know role in that, and that I have pretty much no no idea in my head that there could be a good reason for the Trump administration to get this information and if the Obama administration for asked asked for it I'm sure I would have been far less skeptical so you know that's obviously a bias that I have but that being said the Obama administration never like routinely tried to say that a bunch of people were voting that shouldn't have been and seemed to have nefarious purpose for wanting that information you know because it's that, that that's just what I'm concerned about here is that I worry that if they get all this information and it looks legitimate that they did a study and then they come out and say, oh, all these people voted that are illegal and can't vote that aren't citizens, then that means Congress will do some do something about that problem that doesn't actually exist and make it harder for people to vote. And that is what I'm concerned about. And I just don't feel like anything good will come of this and I don't want anyone you know I don't think people should be encouraging of it and so that's why I'm just frustrated by the um, Republican responses to this because it's it's strange to see you know like RJ Hadley had to say it's just like this is a clear you know question of states rights here whereas like are states allowed to run their own elections or not and that's that's what I'm concerned about is like having undue federal oversight into something that pretty exclusively is supposed to be handled by the states under false pretenses.
0: Um so I think to some extent I I'm just like totally frustrated by this entire conversation. Um you know, McCoon notes in the in the in part of his statement that fighting voter fraud is just as important as ensuring. Voter fraud does of data. not exist though. And
1: you, <laughs> that's the thing.
0: Yeah, I mean it's this it is sort of you know it doesn't put to bed the ongoing ongoing but false narrative that voter fraud is this big problem. Um, we'll link to some information in the show notes, but German Lopez, who's a reporter at Vox, he has a pretty good set of reporting on looking at some studies that looked at voter fraud or attempts at voter fraud in North Carolina, and it showed that like it was like a zero point zero 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 one four percent of votes cast in North Carolina over the period of I think like eight or 10 years were actually considered the sort of in-person voter fraud that voter ID laws are meant to combat, you know, showing up and saying that you're somebody that you're not in an attempt to vote illegally. Republicans throw this around all the time, not all of them, but some of them do, um, in an attempt to be more restrictive with voting procedures. And it's something that just doesn't exist in the real world. Um, you know, there's just no credible evidence of it that I've ever seen.
1: And and I guess my frustration in this too, is the fact that they have been completely silent and almost, you know, cheering the fact that the Russians very clearly meddled in the election and that is not of concern at all for this commission. And so it's just, it's so blatantly obvious that they're trying to push on voter suppression efforts with this, because they picked you know the guy who's the most enthusiastic voter suppressionist in the country, and so that's I guess that's why I get so frustrated with it is that. It's just very, very blatantly clear what they're trying to accomplish here. And it's hard for me to take it seriously or to see it any other way than that. And maybe that's a failing in me and making me a bad co host today. But it's just like this is something that I care about a lot people's ability to vote. It's already, you know, over the past decade since the Voting Rights Act. Um, lost some of its provisions in a Supreme Court case. We've been seeing slowly but surely more barriers be put up for people to vote, which have real measurable consequences. And to be spending so much time and so much effort on having to talk about this, which is a fake issue that does not exist and is being treated as if it was legitimate, is just, you know, infuriating for me. And that's probably why... I just keep harping on the same thing, which is voter fraud does not exist, period, end of sentence, end of paragraph.
0: I think to some extent, too, I get frustrated with Democrats or the left on this a little bit. Um, you know, there are certainly examples. We've talked, I think we talked last year about the example out of North Carolina, where a, a court found that uh, Republican legislators in North Carolina deliberately targeted African Americans with sort like crazy precision or something like that. Democrats have sort of felt you know completely free to sort of tag all Republicans with this issue in a way that I'm not sure is fair. you know that a lot of the lawsuits that come around to Brian Kemp's office I think are a little bit more muddy than can be made, you know than the cases often made by Democrats who just see the name Brian Kemp and seem to almost reflexively say voter suppression Brian Kemp. Um, you know there's a case going on right now that's been going on since 2015, where there have been people who have received letters in the mail saying that they either have not voted in a recent election, or there is some either postal service data or federal data that makes the Secretary of State's office think that they moved. And so they get a letter from the Secretary of State's office saying, um, you need to either update your address or let us know that you have or have not moved. Or if you go vote, or have any interaction with a you know, an elections official, either, you know, the primary way to do that is voting, but also you can sign a petition for a a candidate. I assume this is like a write-in petition kind of thing. But any sort of interaction with with an elections department is going to update that information. Brian Kemp was sued over that, and that, you know, the voter purge idea and how the state manages its voter rolls seems to sort of be at the heart of this idea of whether or not Brian Kemp is attempting to suppress the vote. But when you actually look into the details of that lawsuit, it actually feels to me more like a disagreement, sort of a technical disagreement between the way the state interprets some overlapping federal and state law versus the way that the people who are suing the state um, interpret that law. Basically, there's a conflict between the state's ability to manage their own electoral rolls, which is this process of sending out this letter and getting a response, versus uh, the argument on the other side of this, which is the state cannot in any way use not voting as a way to clean those rolls or, or manage those rolls. But that's not something to me that, you know, you look at that and say, oh, here's a very deliberate attempt to suppress democratic voters or voters of African Americans because this is a process that the state has been using since the early 1990s. And so I think that, you know, we need to be a little bit better about being a little more specific when we talk about examples of voter disenfranchisement or voter suppression that are going on. Um, and we need to make sure that the evidence actually backs that up. I saw a a report that came out of the think tank Demos, which is a left of center think tank in Washington, uh, where they said that Wisconsin's voter ID law might have actually cost Hillary Clinton the electoral votes in that state. But when political scientists took a look at this analysis, they basically mocked it for being really elementary and, and you know not producing the result that was argued um, in this analysis. And so I don't think that Democrats are completely innocent on this either, um, and this is an important, you know, this is sort of the bedrock of our how our democracy functions. I, I think that we would all be better off if we could pull politics out of this a little bit and just expect that secretary of states have to uphold elections law in a nonpartisan way. And if
1: but, but the problem with that, Kyle, is that they've proven they have not done that. This is where I get frustrated because because here, here's a fact. We know this for sure. We know that voters voter fraud is not happening, period. It's not. It's not happening. It's never happened. It probably never will happen in the way that people are currently concerned about with, like, individuals, you know, voting multiple times, voting in multiple places, that kind of thing. It ain't happening. The way that Lyndon Johnson cheated and, like, breaking open, you know, voting boxes and throwing in a bunch of fake ballots is also not happening anymore. So, if that's not happening, but they are having efforts to combat that problem that disqualifies legitimate voters even if it's one even if it's 10 it's already proving that the problem that they are trying to fix the solution to that problem is hurting more people than it is preventing people from breaking the law so they are pursuing efforts that actually do not help the problem that they are trying to fix because that problem doesn't exist and it has Arguably unintended consequences, I would argue that they're intended consequences of hurting people that are trying to vote legitimately. And even if it's 10 people, that's unacceptable. And that's why people get so mad about this is because they are you under false pretenses, preventing legitimate voters from voting. To help their political gains, and that is unacceptable. Even if it's not swinging elections, because I don't think it did. I don't think it swung, you know, the election for Hillary or anything. And even though North Carolina is being a- incredibly aggressive in voter suppression efforts, I don't think that's why Hillary lost. It might be why a state senator lost or a state house member lost, but it's not why Hillary lost. And just the fact that they're getting away with this continuously is unacceptable and that's that's the thing that i think needs to hit home is that they actively say this is what they're trying to do when they're at campaign events and when they think no one's listening and no one pays attention it's what they say they're trying to do. It's very clear that is what Trump is trying to do when he talks about voter suppression and when his team talks about it. So even if they don't do anything, you know, illegal with it, and their their intentions are obviously bad. So if they're incompetent and they can't find ways to suppress voters, we should not encourage them to do that or let them get away with it and let it slide. Because that is how they actually finally get away with it is we stop paying attention to it.
0: I just just to wrap on this, I just think that we have to be careful with like the royal they, because I don't know that it is every single Republican secretary of state or that it is the position of the Republican Party. There are plenty of bad actors out there individually. um, But I think if you try to tie this to the party itself, um, then that's a lot of incentive for Republicans to not care and for them to just sort of openly decide Republicans and Democrats both that part of the goal of being Secretary of State is actually to tilt elections in the favor of one party or the other. And I just think that that, you know, given all of the other problems with polarization we have, I think that if you make it too much about party when you when you criticize election administration, you know, that's not a great path to go down. But with that, I think we'll move on to another light topic, uh, which is uh, Tommy Benton's a mailer that he sent to other members of the House um, critiquing the cause of the Civil War. So so this made headlines a couple weeks ago, or I think a few weeks back now, but, but Benton sent a mailer titled The Absurdity of Slavery as Cause of this, of the War Between the States. And this is sort of in a long string of statements by Benton where he either questions the cause of the Civil War or questions what the actual impact of the KKK was uh, which is obviously a really sore spot in the South. Um, and it's one that Republicans, I think, try to run away from for the most part, with the exception of the few that that seem to be more tied to their, um, you know, their their Confederate memorial organizations than they are to, you know wanting to be good politicians. Um, But because of this, Benton was removed by House Speaker David Ralston from his chairmanship of the Human Relations and Aging Committee, and he was removed from a study committee on civics education in Georgia public schools. It also came out that Benton wanted his name off of the Martin Luther King statue that's going to be erected in front of the Capitol. Um, And ironically, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference wants his name to stay on it. Let's just start with the, the most recent kerfuffle over this, Luke. What what do you think about Benton's statements, and why can't we get away from talking about the Civil War in the South?
1: Because Tom, Tommy
0: Benton doesn't
1: want to stop talking about it. Um, because, the, I mean, the, <laughs> the thing is, like, seriously, like, he seems to, like, find ways to talk about this issue, and so it's something that I, I thoroughly don't understand. Maybe, you know, I'm born and raised in Georgia, but all my family's from West Virginia, so it's not really something that Despite my family, you know, being a bunch of hillbillies, it's not really something that's like in our DNA. So this has always just sort of been a very strange and absurd thing for me. The sort of reverence for uh, the Confederacy—I've—I've I've never understood it at all. And specifically, I haven't understood how Representative Benton keeps walking into this same issue over and over and over again. Um, because it's definitely one of those things where he's he's gotten in trouble for this before and has, you know, had a lot of significant blowback because of this issue. So I I just don't see why he keeps putting himself, you know, in a position to, to get uh criticized on that.
0: Yeah, I don't I mean I don't I don't really get it either. Um, he did tell the AJC in an interview, I think this was last year, that the the Ku Klux Klan was not so much a racist thing, but a vigilante thing to keep law and order, and that it made a lot of people straighten up. Yeah, I just I don't know why. I'm like you, I don't really understand the importance of this, but this is something that historians have noted that there is this sort of underground Civil War bibliography that appeals to neo Confederates. Um, This was a quote from uh, Kenneth Ngo, who's a a historian at Auburn University. There is just this desire from people who honor the Confederacy to sort of attempt to rewrite that history. And it's not really something that's new. Um, Another piece of this that, that has made national news is the effort to remove Confederate statues, statues that are all across the South that honor Confederate veterans, Confederate generals, um, you know, the names of Confederate soldiers also adorn, you know, a bunch of municipal buildings and other, and other public buildings all across the South. Um, and this is something that made headlines when New Orleans actually went through the effort of trying to remove the four of the Confederate statues that are displayed really prominently in New Orleans um, and really quickly, I just want to cl- play a clip of a speech from New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu, who described why it was important for him um, and for the city of New Orleans to remove these statues. So here is Mayor Landrieu.
2: The historic record is clear. Robert E. Lee, Jeff Davis, PGT Beauregard statues were not erected to just honor these men, but as part of a movement which became known as the Cult of the Lost Cause, This cult had one goal, and one goal only, through monuments and through other means to rewrite history, to hide the truth, which is that the Confederacy was on the wrong side of humanity. First erected 166 years after the founding of our cities, 19 years after the Civil War, these monuments that we took down were meant to rebrand the history of our city and the ideals of the Confederacy. It is self-evident that these men did not fight for the United States of America. They fought against it. They may have been warriors, but in this cause, they were not patriots. These statutes are not just stone and metal. They're not just innocent remembrances of a benign history. These monuments celebrate a fictional sanitized confederacy, ignoring the death, ignoring the enslavement, ignoring the terror that it actually stood for. And after the Civil War, these monuments were part of that terrorism, as much as burning a cross on someone's lawn. They were erected purposefully to send a strong message to all who walked in the shadows about who was still in charge in this city. So, yeah, that was,
0: to me at least, sort of a rare example of, of somebody in the South being a leader in the other direction on this. But this is an issue that is really divisive between older Southerners and, and, and the younger, more diverse Southern population that maybe isn't from the region originally or, or doesn't have long family ties to the region. I mean, what do you think, Luke, about just like how this divides us culturally in the South? Well, I
1: think today? it's not insignificant to point out the fact that Democrats lost the governorship of Roy Barnes back in you know the early aughts because he pretty prominently fought taking the Confederate flag out of the Georgia state flag. And so, you know, that's, it's not a new issue, and that this is something that the South has been dealing with for a couple decades. And it's been pretty interesting to see how aggressively it's been fought back, because I think, you know, it goes without saying that, this reverence for the Confederacy is unacceptable and is something that I think needs to be removed. And I'm very happy to see the progress that we're making in removing uh, the statues in New Orleans and several other uh, states and cities. And I, I don't know why it is such a fiery issue for so many still. It makes a lot of sense to me why... Um, progressives are fighting right now for this because so much of the rhetoric and the just atmosphere that we've seen from this administration and those that support it has been so racially charged and so it's pretty obvious to me how we've reached a boiling point where a lot of these things are just unacceptable anymore and this is something i know that mitch landrew actually talked about which i found really interesting which was sort of like us he did not understand that why it was so bad that those statues were there. It's not that he liked them. It's just sort of like he didn't care. He was apathetic towards it. You know, we should you know express our limitations as two white guys. Like we're we're not gonna be able to understand it in the way that African Americans understand why these are so bad. But that should not limit our ability to be allies and fighting to get rid of them. And for people that do support these statues and support the reverence for the Confederacy so much, I mean, you know, I, I just, I don't, I don't understand it. I know some of it has to be racial. It always is. Um, other parts of it um, are economic and it feeling, you know, like the Confederacy is all they have. You know, I'm just, I, I have to admit my ignorance on this because it's a culture that I've never really been able to wrap my head around and, you know, pretty aggressively in my younger years tried to avoid um, because, you know, I'm from, I'm from South Georgia. So there's definitely plenty of neo-Confederates down there. And it was definitely a a culture that I was not interested in engaging with. And so that makes it um, a lot harder for me to wrap my head around why people are so fired up about this on the side of protecting the statues.
0: So I think if you're somebody who is a neo Confederate or, or somebody who sympathizes with that, I I think you would maybe bring up the argument that you know the same the same way that people who supported Donald Trump and voted for him felt that they were misunderstood and that they were looked down upon because they because of the rest of the world and the rest of the liberal media and all that said that they had these backward and deplorable views. And a lot of what I've heard, at least in terms of the case that a neo confederate would make in terms of why they have such reverence for this history and why it's something that should be preserved is that these are their ancestors members of their family that fought and died and they would say displayed a lot of bravery in fighting against an overreaching federal government from the north setting aside for a second that that argument just totally sidesteps you know the fact the the role of slavery and the fact that you know supporting the confederacy sort of implicitly requires you to to at least question whether or not slavery is like a universally bad thing is it possible to separate out reverence for these people that were family members ancestors is it possible to separate that out from the from the bigger question of slavery or I, because I think that that's what they would say. Yeah, is but that they're wrong. I don't think that they <laughs> you necessarily know, want. I, I mean, they're yeah. just
1: wrong. You know, it's just like you don't see a bunch of Germans and, uh, you know, uh, Germany talking about how they love their grandpa who was a Nazi. Like, you know, it's not like anyone's rever- revering, <laughs> having, putting up statues to, you know, the fictional Hans Landa or anything over there. You know, it's just like that is, so- Germany did something right in that they very, very clearly made it unacceptable to support that ideology and that time in their history and the people that were a part of it and for some reason the south failed in our attempts to do that and you know unfortunately it's it's not and the thing is most of the people at least in my experience that talk about these issues it's not that they're talking about their grandfather or their great-grandfather or whoever they're talking about the institution as a whole and they whitewash the whole reason why the war happened because the thing is it's like it's always linked you know that's what i'm trying to say it's always linked it's never just a hey i really like my ancestor that fought in this war it's always oh and he was fighting for good reasons too you know that that is a linked argument there's i've never seen anyone say yeah, I'm really proud of my grandpa that fought in the Civil War because of slavery and because he owned a bunch of slaves and wanted to keep them, you know, or that his rich neighbor did, and so he died for that. No one, no one's willing to accept that. And the problem is, is that we have to, as a country, and I think this is part of the problems we face now, we have to, as a country, face our history and face the mistakes that we have made. And so much of this issue is... A flat out refusal to do that, a flat out refusal to address and look in the face the mistakes we've made as a country with this issue. And I think part of the reason it's so hard to deal with issues like, you know, racial bias in the police and racial bias in hiring and everything else is because of our failure to work on this issue and have conversations about it with people that do not agree and try to push the country forward beyond it and you know I don't I don't know what makes this such a visceral need in some folks in the south but I'm hoping that we can get folks away from that reverence because it is toxic it's toxic to the culture of the south and it has been for a very long time and continues to be
0: yeah this is where i would I would point our listeners over to the bitter Southerner who always seems to have the right things to say on this. They're always really thoughtful um They've had a couple of good essays that we'll link to in show notes um but just you know their as a publication, their conception of the South is a very complicated thing historically and and the need to for southerners to to recognize that and and to wrestle with that and that you can still be proud of the South as a region, um, you know, particularly one that's changing and one that's so different than the way that it was. But but some of the old holdovers, like the fact that people will say hi to you and, and be polite and say thank you and all, and all of that stuff, that is stuff that really does not exist in other parts of the country, maybe a little bit in the Midwest, but, but it is part of grappling with what it means to be a Southerner. Um, the last thing I would note, on this is that maybe the more alarming thing to me is not necessarily the older people who will go out and, and and reenact battles of the civil war and and talk about their reference for family members and all that, but is is it younger people who will actually just use the Confederacy as an excuse or as a symbol to commit violence against other people. I mean, the most glaring example of this is Dylan Roof who shot parishioners in a church, uh, an African American church, in Charleston, South Carolina? Um, it was it was a it was a gruesome, terrible, terrible thing that happened. And and when you looked at Roof's history, he was reverent not only of the Confederacy in the South, but also the apartheid movement um, and the, the movement to keep down African or to keep down South Africans in South Africa. That, to me, sort of as an excuse or as an identity that would lead somebody to commit domestic terrorism, um, which may or may not have anything to do with the cultural values of the South or or its complicated history, but just an excuse for a white person to hate an African American, um, that to me is, is pretty alarming in the way that this issue continues to persist and be something that a radical young white person might be drawn to. But with that, I, I think we'll leave that topic there and we'll move on to our end notes for the week. So, Luke, what's your end note for us um,
1: My end note is that we have uh, a very interesting um, email that went out from uh, gubernatorial candidate Michael Williams, uh, a Republican, which will become obvious when I read the statement. So a brief version that he put, it on, put on Twitter of his statement, which was, uh, quote, Democrats must be held accountable for rolling rape of Gwinnett woman. Georgia must implement statewide 287g illegal immigrant deportation program, as should be apparent from reading that statement. Um, the full statement is pretty uh, Trumpian and very, very accusatory of Democrats and saying that we're responsible uh, for this crime that was committed by a uh, legal immigrant. And what I find uh, interesting about this despite it being obviously just absurd and not representing the views of any democrat that i'm aware of this is going to be an interesting primary in the republican saga in georgia because we're gonna have an opportunity to see how effective trump style messaging is when you remove trump from it because we have michael williams who's going like full-blown 100 percent maybe 110 percent trump We have Brian Kemp, who's like at least doing 80 percent. And then, uh, you know, the other candidates are sort of more traditional Republicans, at least thus far in their messaging. And so uh, as, you know, someone studies history and political science and campaigns, I'm just going to be very curious to see how this develops and if um, really, really over the top statements like this one on this uh, case that Michael Williams put out is actually effective. So. Um, I l- I will be just curious to watch the the progress on that.
0: Yeah, it was a pretty, I would say alarming statement to see in the in the um, Jim Galloway's daily jolt for the AJC this morning. I I don't know. I we're just we can't get away from like the Trump campaign lifestyle, it, it seems like. My note for this week, if you are somebody who likes conflict within a political party, then I think now is a good time to start popping your popcorn. Over the July 4th weekend, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell said that Republicans may have to work with Democrats if their, if their effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act fails. This sort of sets the stage for a real. Conflict within the Republican Party that I think, if you're an outsider, is going to be really interesting to watch. If you're somebody who's a fan of the Republican governing agenda, I think you have reason to be worried. Um, So, backing out of this and doing a bipartisan approach for market fixes to Obamacare is something that moderate Republicans want. But conservative Republicans are really not excited about this idea. And Donald Trump floated basically two solutions if this repeal bill fails. Um, The first is to let the ACA fall apart and then blame Democrats. And presumably Democrats will come begging Trump, come to the table begging Trump for a solution. I don't think anybody besides Donald Trump thinks that's an actual option. But Trump also floated the idea that they would just pass a straight repeal of Obamacare and then replace it later. This is something that Ted Cruz supports. But it's interesting because Ted Cruz has a provision that's being debated right now, that's a part of these negotiations that really sort of defines the split between moderate Republicans and the more conservative Republicans. But this amendment from Ted Cruz has gotten reliably conservative senators like Chuck Grassley and Jerry Moran, uh, both from the Midwest, worried about whether or not the Republican proposal would protect people with pre-existing conditions. Um, but, you know, without getting into all the, the health policy details, It's going to be really interesting to me what actually happens if McConnell does abandon the repeal effort. I think there is a bipartisan group in the Senate that would come up with some sort of solution, but that solution would have to both pass the House and be signed by Donald Trump. And there would be a lot of conservative pressure, I think, on Paul Ryan to not even allow a vote. On whatever the Senate comes up with. And then, actually, at the end of the day, Donald Trump really does hold the cards on whether or not Republicans can abandon this effort. He could veto any sort of bipartisan fix. And I don't think that there's the votes in the Congress to override that veto. You
1: you assume that he will read whatever bill they put in front of him.
0: I don't, I mean, (laughs) I think he doesn't even need to read it. I think he would, you know, I think there would be a lot of outside pressure. Um, that he may respond to, but the other thing that's interesting too is that Senate or that Republicans have second, third, fourth phases of the agenda to still do that they still want to do and presumably want to do before they might get hit pretty hard in the midterms. But if conservatives get pissed about um, you know the failure to repeal Obamacare, their other big proposal, which is tax reform, is basically in this same structure where they need to pass it with only Republican votes in the Senate. And that gives conservatives in the House a lot of leverage to fight with moderates in the Senate. And I just, you know, I see the potential for there being these really big intraparty conflicts that President Trump isn't ready to manage. And I don't really know how you get to the finish line on any of their big agenda items. I I think it's really hard to see where that's going to go. So that is something that if you're you know interested in that it's definitely time to start popping the popcorn because i think it's going to get really interesting in washington here pretty and
1: soon. uh kyle managed um, to go a whole hour and eight minutes without mentioning health care so you know
0: uh technically I where didn't oh I did swear. you mention it earlier i stayed out of the wonky details
1: well no no I, well what well, i mean the, is that you that's when you started talking about it is that deep into the show yeah
0: but with that Uh, hashtag always Obamacare. We will leave it there and we will talk to you again next week.
1: Bye, guys.
0: That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.